listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. I read a lot of books about grief. Memoirs, self-help ones, clinical takes, and of course, there's not really a novel out there that doesn't hit on grief in some way. Most of the ones I read for work take me a bit, because when I'm not working, I like to read the books that I pick, which of course are usually about grief too, but you know. So when I got my copy of Laurel Braitman's new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love, it was in the work category, and I figured it would take me a bit to read it. I was outrageously wrong. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I thought I was reading a memoir about Laurel's experience of being a teen when her dad died of cancer. And that's part of it, but oof, it doesn't stop there. In fact, one night, I was up reading, way past my bedtime, when I turned the page, and then I yelled, No, not the dog too! The next morning, I emailed Laurel, who responded with, Buckle up, there's more loss to come. And she wasn't joking. The facts. Laurel was three when her father was diagnosed with cancer. As a cardiac surgeon, he relentlessly pursued every medical option available to him, and some that weren't really available until he made them so. He lived until a few days before Laurel's 18th birthday. She spent the next decade and change running, running towards accomplishments and running away from the guilt and the shame that were the loudest voices in the room of her grief. Then, in her 30s, Life unfolded in a way that made Laurel stop running and start investigating, something she does really well as a writer and a journalist. That's how we met. She came to Dougie Center back in 2017 to take a tour and talk with a few of us on staff. At the time, she wanted to write an article about teens and grief. Then, a few years, well, six actually, went by. And in that time, a lot happened. As Laurel puts it, Pianos of loss kept falling from the sky. Relationships ended, her dog died, her family's home was destroyed in a wildfire, the pandemic hit, and not long into it, Laurel's mom was diagnosed with and died of pancreatic cancer. See, not joking. The book Laurel started off writing became a very different one. A book about all of these pianos, but also a book about love the love she has for the people and the places and the creatures who have died, and the love she's had to work so hard to stay open to. Laurel talks a lot about the shiny prizes she ran towards after her father's death, so here's a short list. Laurel Breitman, PhD, is a writer, teacher, and secular clinical chaplain in training. She is the author of the new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery, and the New York Times bestselling book, Animal Madness, Inside Their Minds. She received a doctorate in History and Anthropology of Science from MIT and is the Director of Writing and Storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine's Medical, Humanities, and the Arts program. On paper, Laurel is outrageously accomplished, and in person, she's kind, funny, real, 
and generous with her story. Laurel, welcome to Grief Out Loud. I'm so excited to be here. I've wanted to be here for years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Laurel, you and I met, what year was it? When did you come to Dougie Center to talk to us? I don't know, like 500 BC. It feels like a long time <laughs> <It does>. ago. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, Laurel came to Dougie Center back, you know, in the Stone Ages to talk to us about what we do at Dougie Center because you were working on an article, I think, about grief and teens. And I was like, yeah, I'll meet with you and chat with you. And, and then years went by. And I was just the like, I literally, three months ago, I think I was like, whatever happened to Laurel Breitman? And I googled you and I was like, Oh, there's a book. And then you emailed me the next day to say, amazing. I didn't write that article. Instead, I wrote a whole book, a whole memoir, what looks like bravery and epic journey through loss to love. So Wow, that a lot happened since we met. A lot happened. A lot. Ha- you got to be careful when we, you meet with people now, Dana. <laughs> and and you know, Laura, I got to say, I get a lot of books because of the role that I'm in, and I read a lot of books, and they're all amazing in their own way. But rarely do I just like can't put a book down. And this was one of those books where I was like, I gotta, I gotta find out what happens. And I thought I knew what happened, and then a lot more happened. And you know, so I'm like, where do we start? But usually we start with like, tell us about the people, the places, the pets in our guest lives who have died. So what do you want to tell us today? Well, I probably won't take you through the laundry list of people, places and pets. (laughs) Because we only have an hour. Um, I would say the first big one, you know, the one that was the crucible that made me was the loss of my dad. And it was the long loss of my dad. So he was first diagnosed with a terminal illness when I was three. And he didn't die until I was 17. And so the 14 years of living with a terminally ill parent was was a forge of sorts, you know, for for good and bad, as so many of your listeners know. What do you think? Well, not what do you think? What do you know? about the reverberations of growing up in a household as a child where illness was very much a part of that life. You know, I, as so many people you work with, I'm sure have told you more eloquently than I, I I think it was the air that I breathed. And so I didn't know any different. You know, I have nothing to compare it to. What I know is that I grew up with the ticking clock of mortality so loud I could barely hear anything else. Or as, you know, I try to describe it in the book, I think this way, is like an executioner's axe hanging over our dinner table, and I never knew when it would fall. And, you know, that doesn't change after the person dies, which is so odd, at least in my experience. You know, I just live like that. I I don't know another way to be. Um, And that's responsible for all of the things I'm most proud of in my life, my sense of adventure, my empathy my interest and love for others and their own struggles, you know, and and also a a gigantic amount of anxiety. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have anything to talk about when your relationship to vigilance and hypervigilance related to that? Oh, my God. It's so exhausting. And, you know, I have to say that's something that was so absolutely wonderful about discovering you all and talking to you and then training to be a facilitator, volunteer facilitator myself at um, Josie's Place, which is a kind of Dougie Center, but in the Bay Area. And it was realizing that it wasn't just me. 
you know, I think that's such a profound thing of the work you do. And I, I just, I didn't know how much that would change my life and make me feel less existentially lonely to realize I wasn't alone. Like it wasn't just my brother or my mom and me. It was everyone who's had this experience or at least many of us. And that rather than being depressing, you know, was, was so heartening. It was like, I was on this team. I, you know, I didn't know I joined and yet there was a goalie and all kinds of other people and (laughs) we were all here suffering similarly. It was great. When you talk about like it was the air that you breathed growing up and I think about living in what feels like a very different atmosphere, like maybe walking around and thinking other people are acclimated to breathing oxygen and I'm acclimated to breathing hydrogen. And then you find all your hydrogen people who are like, oh yeah, we know what it's like to breathe hydrogen, the hydrogen of grief. And because you grew up in that for so long, you know, I think about kids and teens, they learn a lot about grief from other people, like what they're told explicitly or what they see and the messages that come across maybe more implicitly. So what, what did you learn about grief from the way that your dad approached his illness and the end of his life and maybe the way your mom did as well? Well, I don't know that I had thought about this that much until I met you, actually. I will never forget. You told me in that interview many low this many years ago that part of what you guys do is offer people an alternative to whatever their family narrative is around grief or loss. And that just hit me uh, so hard. You know, I, I think I knew how much that had affected me was my parents' singular belief around loss and grief and but I hadn't realized how problematic that might be. You know, the narrative in my family was, you are lucky, you are blessed, you do not need to worry about where your next meal is coming from, therefore you are fine, this is a blessing, and you're going to be okay onwards, right? Which is true, (laughs) you know? Like, my father was a cardiac surgeon, you know? We weren't worried about money, you know? I I wouldn't say we were, like, ridiculously wealthy or anything, but we we were more than comfortable, and I knew that if he died, we wouldn't lose our home, and we wouldn't have to worry about buying groceries. I knew they had some savings. So it, that was true, you know, but but that is not the only thing one worries about as a child, right? In fact, you don't really worry about that as a child that much, even if those things are happening beyond being hungry or not, you know? Like, I, I didn't have existential fears about losing our house. It hadn't occurred to me that was a thing that could happen yet. Um, and here were my parents before I'd even worried about it, telling me I didn't need to worry about it. And because of that, I should be fine. Um, and that I was lucky that I had parents that loved me this much and whatever time I got with them was going to be enough. And that was our family narrative. It was really like, pull yourself up, kid. Uh, nothing to see here. Onwards. Um, get to work. Which appeared from what you wrote in the book to be very much your dad's approach to his own illness and his own mortality. Yes. My dad was a spectacular person in in nearly every way he was so larger than life and he but he had a vulnerability problem i think you know in that he saw himself as a physician who helped heal other people and when he couldn't heal himself i think that came with a certain degree of shame um and the way that he dealt with that was like no one will feel sorry for us Um, I'm fine. I do not want to be a recipient of pity because pity equals weakness. And so that's what we learned, you know, and I, I, 
he wasn't wrong in some ways. I mean, I think like my work ethic is responsible for a lot of great stuff. Uh, but I really like never felt sad for myself until my mid 30s. You know, it didn't occur to me that what had happened to us was kind of hard because I learned to brush it off. Like my dad and mom, too, it would get kind of annoyed, you know, if we would go somewhere and people would say, I'm so sorry about what you're going through. Like they, they I could see them get like kind of itchy and uncomfortable and they would be like, we're fine. We're fine. You know. Um, and I learned that and that was my model. And because I didn't have a Dougie center to go to or a Josie's place, you know, I didn't know there were other ways of being, um, until I was an adult. And even then, you know, it took me well into adulthood. It feels like yesterday, um, that we had that conversation. I don't know. We, you know, we, we get to the questioning of our models when we get to them. I, I don't think I was capable of it at 22. I certainly wasn't at 17. And so at 17, you're just about to turn 18, you're graduating high school, you're looking at next steps, and your dad dies just before your Christmas break. What did grief look like to the outside world? I think at the time, I thought it was like crying and, you know, the rending of fabric and big public displays of grief and maybe not eating. I don't know. Uh, dressing in black. I had like a very teenagers, like bookish teenagers idea of mourning, which was like Victorian from reading Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> um, and I did not fit that, you know, um, or rather I did. I, I was a nerdy bookish teenager. Um, but I really, I, you know, I had inherited this fear of weakness. And so I cried a couple times and only in private. And then I felt shame about that. Like, shouldn't I be falling apart more publicly? And, you know, I told myself a story about what grief and sadness should look like. And I, mostly, though, I was dying of shame. Um, I write about this in the book, but my last conversation with my dad was a fight. And I hung up on him and I didn't say I loved him. And he was doing uh, medical aid and dying or right to die. He, he was taking lethal medication because he didn't want to go through multi-organ failure. He he wanted to be in charge of his own death, which I understood, you know, but I didn't know he was doing, at least not that day. And so I, I let our last conversation be a furious, furious fight. And so I carried that shame and guilt with me for so long that, you know, I'd messed up. And here was this person who had sacrificed so much, you know, for even a few months, extra months. So the, the grueling treatments he went through to buy time, it was kind of a, a giving tree sort of situation, you know, where he kept doing more amputations or pursuing ever more grueling treatments just to buy weeks or months uh, with me and my brother and my mom. And that that grief and, or, well, that guilt and shame you carried into this experience of grief you know, you're a writer, you're an author, but it feels like the guilt and the shame were the authors for a lot of your life choices and decisions after your dad died. And I wonder, like, yeah, what role did they play in some of the choices that you made? And were you conscious that they were authoring that story? No, no. <laughs> I mean, the things that I am, I have been unconscious of and continue surely to be unconscious of, right? Could fill an ocean. Uh, they do. You know, it, it's almost impossible to untangle what your parents want from you, want for you from what you want for yourself sometimes, particularly if you love them and you want to honor them. And 
I think those of us who have an early loss feel that sometimes even more acutely, the pressure that you're living, not just for yourself, but the unlived lives of the people that you've loved and lost. So even after my dad died, like I didn't turn down the pressure on myself. I turned it up. And I would say that was my coping response, you know, was work, was the chasing of shiny prizes. Um, and it wasn't until I was training to be a facilitator, actually, for kids. Um, Pat Murphy, the founder of Josie's Place in San Francisco, just sort of offhandedly mentioned that uh, overachieving can be a coping mechanism for certain kids and that those kids are less likely to get help because they're instead rewarded for their coping mechanism, even if it's an avoidance of feeling. And, oh, my God, did that knock me sideways. <laughs> you know, I felt uncomfortably seen, I would say. Um, You're like, what, who turned the spotlight on me? Can you turn that a little to the left? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I think this is like the work that you guys do is so beautiful and so excruciating, you know. I had been become comfortable with being invisible, my, my negative feelings being invisible, except we know, right, they're never truly invisible. Um, they come back, you can't kill them. So that's the place I was writing from. You know, that said, I I don't regret any of the things that I wrote or any of the things that I did, even if they were coming from avoidance. Like, I am proud of those things. They got me to where I am. They taught me so much about the world. I'd say now it's just that I want to be um, not seeking validation to prove that I'm good and to counteract a narrative that I'm bad because I messed up my goodbye to my dad, but rather that, like... I am pursuing what I am pursuing because I authentically want it um, and that it's not about proving anything to anybody. Mm. And that's a daily project. It's not like knowing that makes it true. (laughs) You're not like, oh, I flipped the switch on that. That part's over. Now we're just doing things I want to do because I feel fully motivated by the intrinsic reward of it. Exactly. (laughs) Like, oh, to be healthy. It's just done now. Nope. Can you talk a little bit more about how you found your way to that experience of becoming a volunteer facilitator at Josie's Place, which is a program similar to Dougie Center in San Francisco, working with kids and teens who have had someone in their life die? You know, like like anything that's been worth doing in my life, it was a mixture of being at the right place, right time and luck and being open. And What happened was that I, and I write about this, but I was breaking up with my girlfriend and best friend and driving down the 101 South, like speeding way too fast towards the Golden Gate Bridge and snotting all over myself. And I turned on the radio and I heard an episode of This American Life in which the reporter Jonathan Goldstein was going to a bereavement support center for kids in Utah. And... I'd never heard of such a thing. And I turned it up. And here I was like sobbing my way down the freeway. And I listened to the director of the sharing place say out loud, the Goldstein asks her like, well, what's at stake if a kid doesn't get grief support um, at a, at the time of loss or shortly thereafter? And she said, well, they can get scared of intimacy. And when they get too close to someone, they can want to run away. And I was like literally driving over the speed limit, running away from a relationship. Um, and it was just one of those moments where like, oh, I wish I, like, I actually can't write about this because it's like too cliche or something. You know what I mean? The timing is too perfect, but I did because it's true. Um, 
and I pulled over and I immediately Googled kid grief support, California Bay Area, and Josie's place popped up and I left the most embarrassing phone message of my life on Pat Murphy's message uh, voicemail, just saying I'm a writer and, you know, I'd like to talk to her and... And then we met and I asked if I could go through the program as a kid. And she thought that was creepy and (laughs) was really nice about it and told me that I could train to be a facilitator instead and that most of the facilitators had had an early loss and that I'd get to do all the stuff as a kid, but that it would be too weird to have me as like a geriatric child um, (laughs) as a participant. So I sort of skulked away and then I submitted my application and I did it. And I wish I could have done it for longer. I only did it for a year or two, but uh, it changed my life. It really did. What do you remember about that first time, like walking into you know, day one of volunteer facilitator training? Oh, I was scared shitless. I, I like, I don't have children. I only had one nephew at that point. Um, and he was really little. I just didn't, it'd been so long since I played with kids and these kids were like, I don't know. It was like walking into like a monkey exhibit at a zoo. Like they, they just were like in all places, all at the same time, hanging off things, <laughs> hollering at each other, hurling stuffed animals. Like it was just such happy, delightful chaos. But I just remember how loud it was and everything. And, you know, eventually everyone settles and they do an activity and everything else. But those first few seconds where everyone's so excited to see each other and there's so much like pent up energy from the school day. I was just like, Oh my God, (laughs) I'm going to get eaten alive. And also they're going to see right through me as someone who has no idea what she's doing. Um, And you know, it was true. Also, it didn't matter. It was great. It turned out like you could just play tag and and that's enough. And just sitting there with them was enough. And being someone who'd survived what they were going through was enough. And they were so generous with me. It just sharing their insights and yeah, letting this weird adult, you know, just sort of sit nearby while they drew and letting me draw nearby. And it was so healing for me and and profound. You know, they were they're so full of wisdom. I still feel that way every single time I have a kid group, the six to 12 year old kids. I'm terrified of them every time. And I've been doing it for 21 years because it is just like joyful chaos. I'm like, oh, I don't know how to play with kids. I'm the bookish nerdy one. You know, I was reading books by myself growing up. I don't know how to do this play stuff. But somehow we managed to make it through each time. It's amazing. And, you know, I still think about, so when I visited the Dougie Center and talked to you, you would put me in touch with some teenagers because the article I thought I wanted to write was like the wisdom that teenagers have because so often they're written off, you know, as people who just feel their feelings too big and, you know, haven't lived enough and moody and, you know, all those things. But I remember feeling pretty wise as a teenager, wiser than a lot of adults that were around me who hadn't had a big loss yet. And I was so annoyed by adults half the time um, who would just tell me like, it's God's plan or whatever. And I remember telling that to you and then talking to to some of your teenagers. And it just, it was so much fun because they were so much smarter than me, um, you know, because they had had the Dougie Center and because they'd been talking to each other and they, they had a vocabulary that I didn't have until recently and still often don't have. Um, and their their wisdom just shocked me. Mm. They, they are less scary to me than the kids. Of- <laughs> I think it's because, yeah, maybe the two of us, but like, I don't even think I played like that when I was a kid, Mm -mm. you know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think about 
there are so many folks who come to Doggy Center as volunteers who experienced a death when they were a child or, you know, a young teenager, and they didn't have an opportunity to be in community with others or to put any words to their experience or, you know, do artwork around it. And when they're at in the program volunteering, it's almost like a chance to revisit the self that they were at those different times. And is there an example of of that happening for you in your volunteering? I would say it happened. There was no like very specific event, but I would say I felt often that I was kind of making for myself the peer support group I never had, that a lot of the kids and teens wouldn't look at me as a peer, but I felt like I was a peer because I had that thing happen where I feel like I, my internal age for a very long time kind of got stuck at 17 and I was a sort of teenage aunt in amber, sort of. And so when I looked at the 16 and 17-year-olds, in some t- cases, the 11 and 12-year-olds, like I felt like I was looking at a version of me or that we were all the same age, even though they would have said that was crazy because I probably looked like an 85-year-old to them. <laughs> um, but for me, it felt like I had kind of created a peer group and I could ask them questions and I could see like how different my life would have been if I had known other teens who could have talked about loss or not talked and just kept me company in a way I, you know, I I really didn't have when I was their age. Mm -hmm. So that, that was deeply healing and also just comforting to see other kids have a different kind of experience. So Laurel, a big part of your book is writing kind of retrospectively about your experience growing up with your dad and his illness, his death when you're a young teenager, how it sort of shaped and formed a lot of the decisions you made as a young adult and what you pursued career-wise and other adventure-wise. And then there's a part in your book when you're writing kind of like present time about other losses and deaths that are happening. And how did you manage that? Oh, God, I don't know. You know, one foot in front of the other. How do we manage anything? We're not sure we can survive. (laughs) Um, You know, just so listeners know, yeah, the part about my dad is really only the first quarter of the book. Um, And then the narrative picks up again with me realizing something was very wrong in my mid-30s and that I had some work to do and starting out on this journey towards healing of a you know, a wound I couldn't admit was there for various reasons that we've talked about. Um, And then life kept coming, you know, I'd say, oh, life is nothing if not a buffet of things, you know, dishes you haven't ordered and would send back (laughs) if you could. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I ain't yet, you just gotta sit there, keep getting them. And for me, yeah, I just, it was loss upon loss of relationship, of home, of beloved pets, of my mom, you know, many, many different things, um, both uh, climatic disaster and personal tragedy and accident and heartbreak and so many things. And I, I wouldn't say I am not one of those like silver lining people. I want to strangle them. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that loss is ever a blessing. Like I'd like to be a very petty person who has had nothing bad happen to her and is very shallow. Uh, but that is not the life that I got. And for me, each one of those losses was a chance to practice what I was learning. Um, and try to figure out how to keep going in a slightly new way. You know, was I overcome with shame and guilt oftentimes? Absolutely. But also I was learning um, largely, you know, through the kids and my training and 
the therapeutic interventions that came my way once I started doing that training, that shame and guilt was just another form of grief. And so here these new losses kept coming and I I was trying to look at them in a different way, um, taking what I'd learned from the loss of my dad and applying it to these kind of new pianos that kept falling out of the sky and on top of us um, to try to figure out a, a different way to be in the face of them. And, and also really had to be open to love. Like that's the hardest thing of all for me. And I crave it. And I spent most of my thirties single and dating. And that's also what the book uh, is about my dating travails. You know, once you've had a big loss and certainly, you know, as I lived the first 17 years of my life in a, will they, won't they sort of, when is this coming for us way? Like, I couldn't trust that if I loved someone, they wouldn't die or they wouldn't leave or they wouldn't disappear. And so I was being pretty avoidant around love, but also chasing it like it was my job. Um, so that that led to some interesting scenarios. Um, but really, all of this is to say that, you know, I think all of this work has it will always be in my life in service of being open to love, knowing that it's not permanent. Or rather, the love is permanent, but having the person or the place or the creature isn't. When I think about that kind of shift that you were consciously trying to make, of like responding to interacting with the new losses, the death of a pet, the loss of your family home in a wildfire, your mom's death in 2020, there's like the internal shifts of trying to like think about things differently or allow emotions or not allow certain emotions. And then, well, you can't really not allow emotion, but you know what I mean? Like maybe try to open the door to some other emotions. And then there's the outside like behavior shifts that we do that are in support of those, those other changes. And were there things that you consciously like did differently? Absolutely. Again, I, I wouldn't say that a tragic diagnosis is a blessing, but in January of 2020, my mom was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer, which is a rough one. A thousand times, yes, were we able to help her die in a way that I hoped would avoid some of the pain of the way my dad died. It was a kind of celestial do-over for me and my family. I... I immediately committed to her that I would help her die just how she wanted. Um, and that also I promised to myself that I wouldn't let anyone around us or me or, or her go without knowing how much they were loved and with any open questions around whether they'd let her down or had been let down by her. Um, because I had lived with that for so long from the experience of my dad's death. And I just, I there was nothing I wouldn't have done. And it was hard because it was the pandemic. Um, and also because we had lost our house to wildfire, we were living in a construction site. We had no kitchen. We were washing dishes in the shower. I was trying to get her to chemo and keep her from dying of COVID so she could die from pancreatic cancer, which was just slower. There was a lot going on. Everyone's COVID was hard. You know, mine was hard in these very particular ways. But But I changed my actions. You know, we had a living memorial for her. Um, and, and to be fair, my dad, I don't think would have been interested in that in the same way. Like, right. Like everyone gets the death they get. And I, and I think so much of this was my mom, like being so brave and facing her death so, so courageously, you know, and, and not being afraid 
to ask questions or to have questions asked of her. And, you know, we were really lucky in that way. And and also I was really lucky that I could leave the Bay Area and move home and be with her. You know, so few people can do that because of their work, but I was able to do that. Um, so I would say that was a way where actions, my actions were very different because I'd, I'd had a chance to do this before and hadn't had as much responsibility. You know, I was a teenager and was largely reactive. So this time, I was going to do it differently as as much as she was open to. This didn't hit me while I was reading the book, but just now as you were talking about it, I'm like, oh, you brought your journalistic writing self a bit to (laughs) helping your mom with the end of her life of like, we're going to leave no stone unturned. We're going to ask all the questions. We're going to answer all the questions. We're going to have all the conversations. And it, it brought me back to, you know, the day of your high school graduation your mom brought you a gift from your dad uh, of a pen that he had said, like, use this to sign your first book that you write. And I was thinking, oh, here's Laurel writing with her mom at the end of her life. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what's not in the book, which it just kills me. So as my dad was dying, I I had spent the fall of my senior year of high school in a creative writing class. It was like my first creative writing class where we read like female authors and native authors. And I had the most incredible English teacher, Marilee Lynn. And she just absolutely changed my life. Like it was the first time where I wasn't just reading about like Holden Caulfield or something, you know, like I saw (laughs) myself um, and other people, nature, particularly women in what I was reading for the very first time. And as our final project, we were asked to write about our family. And I spent a few weeks writing a poem for my dad. When I got home late that day, I went into my parents' bedroom where he was not conscious, you know, um, but had taken his uh, medication. And so I knew he was dying. And I didn't know when, you know, I knew he wasn't going to wake up again. And I just hoped he could hear me. And I read to him the poem that I had written, I, I knew he was proud of me as a writer and I, I had really worked hard on it. That that was the day he died. And then the I had initially written this in the book, but my editor was like, it's, it's too much, Laurel. Already there's too much in that dying scene with your mom. You got to take this out. But the truth was, is that my mom was reading this book. That was one of the things she wanted to do before she died. She wanted to see the end of the Trump presidency and she wanted to finish reading my book. And she wanted to see the end of the pandemic. Uh, She did not get to see those other two things. And I hadn't written the parts about her yet. I still didn't think that was something I wanted to do. But she finished reading the book up until her diagnosis. She had me read it to her because she was too weak to read it herself. That's how I spent the last, you know, few hours with my mom on the day she was dying. And then she took her medication and we said goodbye to her. And I wrote all about that part. But the irony is not lost on me that, you know, I use the pen my dad gave me to write a book someday to write his story, to write my mom's story, to write my story. And really what happened was, you know, for decades, I used it to write other people's stories. I was scared of writing my own. I thought, what do I have to say? This is such a small, quiet thing. This isn't universal. You know, I want to write about science and medicine and weighty topics like that. (laughs) But really, you know, I think this was the one I was born, born to do. You write a lot in the book 
while, you know, about writing the book, but also just like your life was really motivated, not only to like, rectify or make up for the guilt and the shame that you felt about that last conversation you had with your dad, but also just to make him proud. Because he was, I mean, your dad was a force based on what I have read about him. He was a very accomplished man who wanted his kids to be very accomplished and like, very driven. And now that you're at this place of you wrote this book about that experience, you've lived all these experiences in your life, you've worked really hard to open yourself up to love. What do you think your dad would be the most proud of you for? Oh my God, great question. Oh, I hope he would be proud of me. It's gonna make me cry. I think he would be, I don't know, probably the Stanford professorship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I think would make him feel the best and the most accomplished is that I know how much he loved me. You know, absolutely. And Part of the book is about this, but you know, it's my deep misunderstanding. You know, what what I took as a to-do list for him, which was like go to MIT, get a PhD, write a New York Times bestseller. Like I did those things. I I was very literal about his dreams for me. And I think I believed in in some secret place in my heart they would bring him back or they would make the loss of him less painful. Um, and then when I realized that didn't happen, when I kind of reached the end of the list and and I didn't feel better and he didn't come back you know, that that's really what set me out on this journey to find a new way of being. That being said, you know, what I discovered was that, like, I don't really think he ever cared that much about those things. That was just the act of a desperate dad trying to make sure that I would be okay without him. And I think excellence or success in this very specific way was something that he could point to and say, okay, well, if you do get that MIT MIT PhD, you're always going to have a job. And, you know, like, I think that really, but it probably could have been anything, you know, I didn't have to take it so literally. And what I found as I was writing the book, and, you know, asking these questions, I'd been scared to ask for decades, was that 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 wasn't really his intention, you know, he lived his whole life. um, And the reason he was scrabbling for time wasn't to make sure that I, you know, uh, became a professor, it was to make sure I knew I was loved. And I I misunderstood. So I think, you know, now, I, now I've told the whole world. <laughs> um, you know, I think he'd be uh, a little annoyed. I talked about, you know, some of our private life. He was deeply private. Um, but he would laugh. I don't know. I think he'd be proud, I know, in my soul. I'll, I never wonder if he loved me, which is such a gift, you know, and I know so many people with living parents who who sadly don't have the same. And and so I think he was successful in that way. So was my mom. That was going to be one of my follow-up question of thinking, you know, as a 17-year-old, you were left with this motivation from your dad to achieve. And it took the, you know, years of being an adult and reflecting to be like, oh, that that mission to achieve is really a mission to make sure I was okay. And so that was his way of loving me. Is there something you've been left with from your mom in a similar, like, how to live your life, Laurel? Yeah. The only reason I was willing to get married, the only reason I think I actually really became open to love was because she never stopped being so. So she lost my dad. That They were married for 25 years. That was another milestone of my dad's. He wanted to see me get into college. He also, you know, wanted to reach a 25-year milestone with my mom. And he he took his uh, 
medication right after their 25th wedding anniversary too. She got married again. And then her second husband died of bladder cancer after they'd been together about a year. Then her house burned down. She lived, she lost everything she loved. And nevertheless, she made herself open to love yet again and um, fell in love with my stepdad, who I call Sam in the book, who was just the greatest blessing for our family. If she could do it, like, who was I, you know, <laughs> to, not, to not be open? I hadn't lost multiple husbands. You know, I'd seen it up close. But she was very brave. You know, after the death of everyone, she would, like, take a year or two and be like, I'm done. You know, I first of all, I can't fall in love with anyone. I killed them. You know, um, she, she, you know, dark sense of humor is our family coping mechanism. I don't know if it's a Jewish thing or just a lost thing, but it's in my blood. Uh, but yeah, you know, she was like, I, I don't want to kill anyone else. So I'm done here. There will be no more love. And then yet, 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 you know, she she remained open to it. So she was my model in that. Also, you know, she you you mentioned a Stetson earlier. I'm I'm always with a with a with a cowboy hat. I just I'm wearing headphones right now, so I'm not wearing it. You know, but she also taught me that there's so many ways to be in the world. Like my dad, she she ran our commercial avocado and citrus operation here, which where I now live, with my brother and his family and my husband. She was a small plane pilot and she was an ex-model who was always like muddy outside digging in a hole or pruning something and you know, she, both my parents, um, but I'd say especially my mom, taught me that we are a prism and don't let anyone tell you how many facets can be on that prism. So I I, I hear her. My, my job with both my parents is actually to hear them less. <laughs> it's, truthfully, <laughs> it's like I know their voices so well and I, that most of my work as an adult is, is trying to figure out how to hear myself louder. Well, world, you have been warned because Laurel is a force of love now, and that love is coming for you because I felt it come for me and you feel it come through in the book and any interview I listen to you give, or I had the honor of watching you do a bit of your book reading in person and that force of love comes through uh, extremely strong. So yeah, I kind of want to say like, job well done. <laughs> Thank you. You changed my life. You really did. So did Donna. So did Joan. So did Alicia. So so did the teens I talked to. But truly, I, I cannot, I can't thank you enough. You guys are my heroes. Well, Laurel's become, and folks, those are all Ducky Center uh, current and former employees that Laurel spoke to uh, when she came to visit Ducky Center in Portland. And as we come to the end of our time together, I kind of want to ask this question of like, and I don't know if this feels accurate anymore, of like, what does grief feel like now in this moment but I'm also thinking about it from like you gave this book life you put it out into the world so much went into it and now it's out there and you're doing all this like book touring and promotion and like I think about this idea of like when a, a crisis happens in our lives right there's a lot of adrenaline it's happening and then there's like the after and I kind of just wonder like where are you now in that process uh of the book and in, in relationship with your grief. And sorry, that was a really convoluted question. Did anything come through in that that you're going to talk about? Absolutely. <laughs> I think 
the my experience now is like 50% joy, 50% terror, you know. Um it's such a gift to be able to like travel around the country and in book signing lines and everywhere else, like meet people who've had similar experiences. Now, every time I open Instagram, I have a comment from someone, you know, telling me about their experience, which is incredible and why I do this, you know, and I try to respond to everyone, but I can't, but every time I'm incredibly grateful. And I'd say, you know, it's a place to put my grief, which is nice. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's sort of like a horse uh, pulling a cart around, you know, <laughs> like it gives my grief a job. That said, there's so much, I have so much sadness, you know, and I, I would trade all of this, you know, to have my family back, to have our house, to have my family photos, you know, my dog, I would. And I thought I'd be doing this book tour with my mom. I have her, her closet is now my closet and she had two dresses. She was so excited about this book coming out. And because she had had so many experiences with loss, I just knew she was going to be so helpful to people out on book tour and talking to them about their losses and what worked for her and what didn't. And I was so excited and she was so excited and I've given away so much of her things and I can't touch those book tour dresses, you know? So the grief, the grief is forever. I don't have to tell you that, but also thank God, you know, I never want to be without grief. I really don't. I don't. It's proof of love. It is responsible for every ounce of appreciation I have for the world. Well, Laurel, I so appreciate you ending there in the fact that when I first got your memoir and I saw the title, What Looks Like Bravery, an epic journey through loss to love. And I thought, I know Laurel did not write a one level transformational book where like I was sad and now I'm happy. <laughs> like I went through all that loss stuff. I got to the love stuff. Ooh, so much better. And so thank yeah, you. Just a rom-com. Yeah. Thank you for holding that reality that loss can open you up to love. And that's been part of your process. And loss keeps happening. And the pianos keep falling out of the sky. And the sadness is right there with the joy. So thank you Forever. for keeping that very real for me and for everyone listening today. Thank you so much. I've, I thank you for this podcast. Thank you for the work you do. Thanks for keeping the Dougie Center going and thriving. I just, I'm so grateful that you exist in the world. Well, thank you, Laurel. And listeners, I'll put all the places to find Laurel in the show notes. We won't make her say that all out loud right now. And I will thank you, listeners, again, as I always do, for being part of our community, for listening to the show, for sharing episodes with people, for reaching out to me, which you can do at griefoutloud at Dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Also the website for Dougie Center. We can find all the past episodes of Grief Out Loud, our free downloadable resources and information about programs around the country similar to ours, like Josie's Place that Laurel was a volunteer at. And excited, as always, to share that po our podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>